Dory Peaches Academy. People often look at immersive technology as a way of entering new worlds to experience things that perhaps we'd never normally get to do. Whether it's gamified simulations of mountain climbing or fighting stormtroopers with lightsabers, there's plenty of stuff out there to delight and entertain. But immersive stories can also enable you to experience an alternate reality, to get a glimpse into someone else's life or get another perspective on a political or social issue, or indeed feel uncomfortable in someone else's shoes. Documentarians and artists have always reflected real life using new forms of technology. And today we're exploring what opportunities they're seeing in these new mediums. I'm Shahani Fernando, and this is the Story Futures Academy podcast. I find myself floating, floating, floating. Welcome to virtual reality, or VR. Don't know what it's like to stand where I'm standing. Just look around you. You are going to undergo many different kinds of reactions. This is a subject that's quite close to my heart, as my background is in journalism and photography, and I spent many years filming and interviewing people, trying to get across their often untold stories. And I suppose the beauty of looking at the documentary form for immersive is that suddenly you can place the viewer inside the story to either experience multiple perspectives or to experience the space itself. What's also exciting is that directors are drawing on existing trends in technology to create new work, using things like AI, eye tracking, algorithms, and all sorts of other things. Later in the show, we'll be talking to the self-styled storyteller from the future, artist Karen Palmer, who uses tech to monitor her audience and to deliver them branching narratives based on their own responses and biases. But first, here's Francesca Panetta describing her recent project, In Event of Moon Disaster. I'm sitting on an old 1960s sofa and in front of me is an is a analogue television. Kellogg. Kellogg's puts more in your morning. It's on playing adverts at the moment and around me is is uh, is wallpaper, actually wallpaper not dissimilar from, from what's in my own home. I'm sitting watching the old analogue television and it's got footage of the moon landing. If all goes well, Apollo 11 astronauts, Armstrong, Aldrin, next stop for them, the moon. And the astronauts are in the lunar lander and, um, oh, something something seems to have gone wrong. The 1202 alarm is, is, uh, has, has just come on and, and, and it's beeping and now the lunar lander is crashing towards the moon. Suddenly there's silence and, and Nixon's appeared on the television as CBS emergency broadcast. He's come on, they're, they're setting up the Oval Office and... Good evening, my fellow Americans. And he's beginning to speak. Fate has ordained that that the men who came to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. 
Francesca Panetta is creative director in the MIT Center for Advanced Virtuality. She's an immersive artist and journalist who specializes in using cutting-edge technologies to create new forms of documentary stories. She was formerly executive editor of the virtual reality unit at The Guardian, which I must say is where we worked together for a number of years. She was also a Neiman Fellow at Harvard in 2019. Fran, brilliant to have you on the show. Lovely to be here. I'd love to talk to you a bit about your career journey and how you ended up in immersive, because it's probably not a traditional route. Yeah, I started in audio in radio productions at the BBC. And then I moved to The Guardian when they were just setting up podcasting in 2006. I worked at The Guardian actually for 13 years. Um, So moving from uh, kind of running the audio department, the podcast team, um, and then into a kind of more experimental role. So I had a role as special projects editor for a while um, where we worked together, actually. um, We did indeed. Pioneering uh, new forms of storytelling. And that evolved into VR in 2016, where as one of those experiments in journalism, I made with Lindsay Poulton, who co-directed a VR piece with me about solitary confinement in American prisons called Six by Nine. And then from that, the kind of VR work at The Guardian took off and we set up an in-house studio, which I ran, uh, making a series of VR pieces. What drew you to immersive storytelling as a maker? Because you'd come from a news and current affairs background. Why did you think immersive mediums were suited to telling these sorts of stories? I guess, first of all, I would take immersive as being not just VR. Immersive can be books, a really great immersive story just envelops you. And I see audio as being extremely immersive. So I'm I'm interested in how you... Uh, wrap a story around someone and create an totally immersive environment. And a lot of my work has been in sound in thinking about what immersive storytelling looks like. Um, But VR as well has got the potential in many different sensory aspects to envelop you and immerse you. And I guess as someone who's interested in journalism, but also who works as an artist, the more fully that we can access people's emotions and all of their senses, the more ability we have to affect the way they feel about a story. So if you care a lot about the content and the journalism, and you also care about how people engage with that story, then immersive storytelling techniques and technologies can be a a really great way of having a large impact on audiences. So when we worked together at The Guardian's VR studio, It was still a very new medium to explore for non-fiction and we made about 12 VR pieces over that time and covered a range of subjects from autism to child development, climate change, extinction. Why did The Guardian as a news organisation want to explore virtual reality storytelling? The Guardian's always been really adventurous and kind of brave in looking at what storytelling and what journalism um, can mean for them and it's something I you know, really loved working there. VR, I think for them was also another experimentation in what journalism can look like. What does it mean if you can be placed within the story, if you can participate in the story? Um, So they were really enthusiastic about seeing where this could go. For me, as the executive editor of the studio, 
I was really interested in experimenting with form. So both experimenting with story form, but also experimenting with different aesthetics and different technologies and techniques. First came the protests, then the siege, the skies spitting bombs, starvation, burials. These are things you know. I look at your profile in the glow of this moon, my boy, and I say to you, hold my hand, nothing bad will happen. You are precious cargo, Marwan. I pray the sea knows this. That was a clip from Sea Prayer based on a fictional piece of writing by Khaled Husseini, author of The Kite Runner, And we made it at a time when there were lots of reports of refugees dying on these journeys that they were making across the Mediterranean. Um, Where did you draw the line between docufiction, if you like, and documentary? We put a lot of legwork into the research. So the piece that we made about autism, which you were also involved in the party, you know, there was extensive research done beforehand and consultation And then even though it then becomes a fictionalised script, it is drawn on very serious journalism and research matter. So for me, as long as it has that integrity behind it, the interpretation can be less traditional. Welcome to your cell. You're going to be here for 23 hours a day. You can be sent to solitary for... Disobeying a direct order. Fighting with 90 days extra. Yelling too loud. Somebody's labeled a gang member. Any kind of drugs. Looking at a correction officer. Just looking at him. Having too many rolls of toilet paper is 90 days extra. Too many postage stamps. Eating all of your food. And it's not uncommon to find somebody who's sentenced to a year and then ends up with five, six, seven years in a pot. Tell me a bit about that first VR piece you made, Six by Nine because I think it still stands the test of time and is really interesting as a documentary VR case study. Well, the original piece that we made, Six by Nine, was putting you in the place of uh, an incarcerated prisoner in solitary confinement and giving you some kind of indication of of what the experience was like. Um, At the time, there were about 100,000 people in solitary confinement for a range of reasons, from minor offences to to more serious ones. And the piece is trying to show the inhumane conditions that people are placed in and also the damaging psychological effects that being in isolation and this kind of sensory deprivation can have on you. It's a piece that really suited the medium, didn't it? There was something very powerful about being physically quite constrained in a small cell and hearing a lot of real archive sound around you. This piece is uh, an experience about space. The piece isn't about a character or a person. It's about your relationship with that space. And that works really well for VR, which is a spatial form. It was made in CGI. We made it with the mill who did all the technical and visual work. It's heavily sound designed with real sound from Maine State Penitentiary Prison, which we got from Frontline, who'd made a documentary there and got kind of wonderful actuality from hanging microphones and cameras in the Supermax. 
We also interviewed 10 people who had been in solitary confinement in California and in in New York State. And we asked them both to tell us their experiences, but also to, to talk to you as if you were in solitary confinement. This is a technique that I've used a number of times, which is this kind of second person storytelling. So talking directly to the user, to the audience and asking them to engage with this space. Your vision becomes blurred because that's something that happens uh, when you don't have um, sensory input and you begin to hear things, you begin to hallucinate and then you rise to the ceiling and, and, and look down on the space and the cracks on the wall kind of increase and, and, and fracture. In audio, you hear the people around the cells around you banging on the walls and it becomes, you know, extremely kind of loud and violent and confusing. And I think people have underestimated sound a bit because actually it's so important for any kind of immersive work, isn't it? I would say so. I'm I'm biased, of course, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like, you know, sound is 360, whereas we can't yes. see 360. We can only see, I don't know, 180 or something like that. We can't turn off our ears. We can close our eyes. It's just, and we know from things like music that sound has got an enormously emotive quality to it. You know, we know from podcasts, there can be a, a real closeness when you hear the voice of someone closely recorded, very intimate. Um, and so I feel like there could be more experimentation in sound. But as I say, I'm biased as a former musician and radio person. I want to talk about your most recent piece, in Event of Moon Disaster. It's not an immersive piece. It's actually a screen-based installation that you might see in a gallery or museum, but there's some really sophisticated tech behind it and it's quite a profound comment on deep fakes. How did you come up with the idea? I was talking with some friends, artists and journalists um, about ideas. I was on the um, Neiman Fellowship for Journalism at Harvard last year and we would have uh, weekly brainstorm meetings. In one of these sessions, we were talking about the anniversary of the moon landing and we were also talking about deep fakes and wow, they're really realistic and scary they are. And we came up with this idea of an alternative history of if the moon landing had not been successful. And in fact, there had been a speech written for President Nixon at the time for him to read on broadcast if the astronauts hadn't been able to return back to the US. And the memo is on the speech is, is called In Event of Moon Disaster. So that's why we, we decided to name our piece that. And so... The film is the broadcast from Cronkite introducing the day of the Apollo 11 taking off and the astronauts going up into the air. And then using actually very simple editing techniques, we managed to kind of edit the archives so that the lunar lander, the eagle, crashes down onto the moon. And then using artificial intelligence, uh, we then have Nixon deliver this speech that he actually never delivered. These two men are laying down their lives and mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. There is deep fake technologies that make him look like he's um, delivering the speech. And we also worked with a company, Respeecher, to create a synthetic Nixon voice as well. So it sounds like Nixon is delivering the speech. They will be mourned by their families and friends. 
They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a mother earth that dared send two of her sons into the unknown. So how complicated was it actually? Because when you see it within this installation on this television, it looks sort of seamless. But what actually went into making Nixon look so realistic delivering this speech that, of course, he never did? Yeah, it's it's quite easy to make uh, very basic deep fakes, kind of face swapping. But the level of production that our piece has is is much more complicated and much more expensive. So we work with two companies that are really at the top of their game. So Canny AI are in Israel. They did the video dialogue replacement, um, and that is making the area around the mouth and the jaw, everything that's attached to the mouth. They changed that area and. They've worked very hard to come up with the software that enables that to be extremely high quality. And then the voice technology is, as I was saying, respeacher in the in the Ukraine. Um, they build these synthetic voices, and what that actually for us um, took a lot more production. We we recorded hundreds of clips of an actor's speaking, and then you set those those two parallel sets of data um, into the the AI black box and um, and then anything that, that our actor says comes out in Nixon's voice. Our message is not, well, you know, only if you've got lots of money and lots of time can you make something like this. It's, you know, beware because this kind of technology is out there right now and it's hard to know what's real and what's not real. So, you know, think about where your media is coming from, check the sources, think how, how likely is this uh, to be real before you kind of accept all of the media that you are encountering. We've launched a digital version now of this piece, um, moondisaster.org, where you can see the film um, and thinking very carefully about the messaging around it so that, you know, it is still an artwork. So it kind of draws you in without heavy handed kind of wording around it, but also so that it's really clear what we've done and why we've done it. I think the other thing to note is that the speech was really beautifully written. It's got some, you know, beautiful language in it. And so actually it feels very, very authentic um, in a way that many deep fakes, I suppose, don't. Yeah, it was written by Bill Sapphire, who was one of Nixon's speechwriters and also um, a New York Times journalist, actually. Absolutely beautiful writing. Um, and, and so again, it's this interesting play between hybrid kind of fiction and non-fiction so the material itself is very much real but the performance isn't. I've got one more question Fran which is for anyone starting out in this landscape what's your advice in terms of skills that they could pick up or things that they should do to really get a handle on what's out there in the immersive storytelling world? I mean, I came at this as a radio producer. So my first bit of advice is like, you don't have to be really, really technical and a coder. Like it really is accessible for anyone to do. Watch as much as you can, because there are so many different approaches and no one's going to teach you what is the right way to do it. Uh, and you will learn the most um, by experiencing. So just try and do everything you can possibly get your hands on. And then I would say talk to as many people as you can or watch as many YouTube videos. Try and familiarize yourself with the processes, understanding kind of what interactive design is, uh, what product managers do, what coders do, what 3D animators do. Having some idea 
um, of what is possible and what's involved can be really helpful. And what's your advice for prototyping early on? I really encourage people to use the kind of cheapest and easiest techniques possible because one thing about these slightly more complicated technical platforms like VR is that you're not going to be able to just build one beautiful storyboard and then go into production and then do like one edit. It's just not going to be possible. And if you do that, you'll, you, you will limit the number of iterations and experimentation you can do. Trying to prototype up right from the beginning and not being very fixed on what that story is going to end up looking like, I would, I would really recommend. Thank you, Fran. Lovely to have you on the show. Lovely to talk to you. My next guest is artist Karen Palmer. Her early career was in directing music videos and doing brand campaigns. But over the last 10 years, she's established herself as an artist working at the forefront of AI and interactivity, presenting work at, amongst others, the VNA, ICA, Cooper Hewitt, Future of Storytelling Festival and the Phi Centre. A few years ago, she was AI artist in residence at ThoughtWorks in New York City. Her latest project, Consensus Gentium, is, I quote, set in a future world of weaponized technology and bias algorithms, where people are resisting infringement of digital human rights. In 2017, she made Riot, a visceral, emotionally responsive film. And here she is describing it. As you approach the experience, a Riot officer will ask you a series of questions. Once you've satisfied his criteria, he will usher you into the space. It's dimly lit and there is scent around you as if of smoke and you're surrounded by ambisonic sound and there is a haziness in the atmosphere. As you look in front of you, there is a large projection of a riot. As I watch the film, the film is watching me back and the narrative is branching in real time depending on my emotional response. So I'm coming into contact with a riot officer, a looter, a civilian who needs help. Leave immediately! Attack! Leave immediately! And if I respond to, say, the riot cop with anger, he will maybe detain me. Leave immediately! Or restrain me um, quite aggressively. And if I respond to the looter with empathy, then I go with the looter and we loot together. So the film is taking on board my emotional response as if I myself am a character in the film. Karen, it's so lovely to have you here. I want to really find out a little bit about your career and what led you to moving into immersive tech in your practice. So my background is that I used to be a traditional filmmaker. I studied film and photography and fine art, actually, at university and art college. And um, about 15 years ago, I kind of had the feeling and inclination that the future would be with media and entertainment and film would be interactive in some way and that the audience would move from being an audience to being a participant. And then that kind of responsive, interactive experience would 
warrant technology in some format. My objective is very specific in what I'm trying to do. I am trying to make you conscious of your subconscious behavior. I am trying to expand your perception of yourself and reality. I'm very specific. Now, advertising is doing kind of, I feel like the inverse of what I'm doing. It's aware of the dynamics of how to trigger your subconscious because buying the car isn't really about buying a car. It's about your sense of identity and how you're viewed in society when you have a car. Mm. So I have this understanding, but I'm trying to help you. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm just trying to help you discover who you are. I want to kind of empower you through the art of storytelling. And your work is about getting people to look at their own responses to situations, isn't it? I want to create this, this division between my film and reality to be very seamless. So that when you're watching The Riot Cop and you're realising that he's responding in a way that's not favourable to you through you being angry, you can do the experience again and this time be calm. And then you can continue on my experience. And what you're learning is to understand your triggers and to learn to kind of rechannel your emotions. So that when maybe you get home and your friend or your spouse starts arguing with you, you've started to reprogram yourself neurologically. So you're changing your programming. So let's talk about Riot, because it's a really highly compelling piece of um, piece of work which has been to museums and toured around the world. What inspired it? And tell me how it's presented. Okay, so I was watching the Ferguson riots kind of unfold um, on social media after the murder of um, Michael Brown. I saw that unfold on in the media, 2014, and I was really deeply affected by this. I was like, my God, like, still murdering young black men, you know? I'm a, I'm a black chick and this really, really affects me. I was just like, what can I, how can I respond? How can I add to this narrative? What could I bring to this conversation? And I thought, you know, because I saw the media was portraying it as, you know, like these troublemakers mm. and, you know, and I was like, what would bring people to be in the right situation? And I want people to understand that dynamics. And it's not something that people kind of almost choose to, hey, I want to go out and cause trouble. It's like, no, no, this is something they're compelled to stand up for, to do with social justice and, and rights. So I wanted to put people in that environment and um, show kind of the context of what brought it there and make people kind of aware of how they would actually respond. I no, absolutely. And, and so what is the tech behind it that you're using? How is it all coming together? Mm. What are they reading? Talk, talk to me about the immersive tech bit. OK, so there's a few different levels. So there's um, the artificial intelligence and the facial recognition, which connects to an interface which enables a branching narrative. So what happens is if you're angry, that will trigger the tech to go to, say, narrative one or narrative two, and then that will branch in real time. I developed this, the initial riot project in conjunction with Brunel University London and Dr Hong Ying Meng, and um, he's a leading expert in um, facial recognition and um, artificial intelligence in the UK. We taught the machine what anger looks like, what fear looks like, what calm looks like. Mm. So um, that when it saw that expression in the form of like 
angles or, you know, points on a graph, which is a face, it would then tell the interface, okay, bang, that's, that's a match. You will now go tell, tell the interface to branch number two, which takes it to the fear narrative. Yeah. Or the calm narrative. So I feel like there's been a lot of news over the last couple of years about AI only being as good as those who program it. You know, how can we make it more inclusive? How do we avoid the horror stories of people being rejected for jobs, say, based on their names? Um, So a storyteller from the future, I want to ask you, what is your biggest fear in all this? Um, My biggest fear is not the tech. My biggest fear is that the people will acquiesce and not realise what's coming. And so in many ways, your work is about exploring people's own unconscious biases, conscious and unconscious, but playing that back to them so that they're kind of aware of what their stance is in those situations, right? Sheffield Festival of the Mind. I remember this white lady did the experience and the looter was talking to her saying, look, I'm not doing this looting for me, I'm doing it for Mumsy. Like, I really want to take care of Mumsy. This is my one chance to get something to make a difference. And what happens is that it's reading your emotional response. And if you're calm, you kind of go with the looter and you do looting. And if you're angry, you shop them and you call for Mm. police. And I said to her, how was that? Was that actually, because it's reading their facial emotion detection to seeing how they respond. And she goes, yeah, listen to him. And I was like, yeah, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, I was completely empathetic. I was like, really, like, I really understand where he's coming from. And that's a narrative she got, that she went with him and they did the looting together. So, and maybe she wouldn't, uh, when she watches that on the news, that's not the feeling she would have had. We did a lot of, like, workshopping of certain type of acting based upon experiences that people had so that this was really authentic that these are things that people have actually Mm. said so that when it came over it was like she was connecting with a human being in a very hostile um, intense situation. Obviously this particular moment with Black Lives Matter and everything that's happened more recently Uh how do you think artists are responding you know how do you feel immersive technology could be used to confront some of these big issues because it is so visceral. Exactly how I'm doing it is how I think it can be done. There's a big conversation when VR came out 2017, 2018 about, okay, I'm going to make you understand what it feels to be a black person. I'm going to make you understand what it feels to be a woman, where you feel as I feel to be trans. Like, we're going to put you in our perspective. That's how VR, but, you know, that's not my kind of gig in terms of, I don't know if putting a headset on for three minutes, people are really going to understand my lifetime experience as a black chick. So that just doesn't gravitate to me. But everybody's got to have their own personal form of expression and interpretation. The way that I see to do it is this amalgamation of my personality, Mm. which is making people conscious and subconscious, looking at that neurologically, looking at that social justice, looking at that from a spiritual, from a parkour, because I'm into parkour, enabling you to move through fear. That's the kind of world building that I've created in what I'm doing. But there's an infinite amount of worlds that different people will create to enable participants to invite them into their own personal world. You're working on a new project called Consensus Gentium. What's that about? I am bringing messages in the series of immersive films from the future to people in the present to warn them of what's coming in an immersive film experience. If you're receiving this message, you have been chosen. The rest of this message will be encrypted for your protection. 
Do not worry, I have been working with experts in your present, knowing that this time of uncertainty would come. The kind of thing I could compare it to is like, imagine being inside the Minority Report film as opposed to watching it, and how you could actually interact with this future world and learn about yourself and how you would respond within the world of the future. And is that using similar kinds of tech? Um, yes, a little bit. I'll be looking <laughs> at um, facial emotion detection. I'm also going to be exploring eye tracking and other multimodality experiences as well. And with that, presumably it'll be distributed through museums again, as most of your work kind of location-based or do you see yourself well, making stuff for at-home entertainment, I suppose, particularly in light of what's going on now with COVID and people not able to get to places? Yeah, about last two or three years, it was very important to bring these experiences just out of these more kind of elite environments like museums and galleries and conferences um, mm. to the masses, really. Yeah. So I have been looking at digital experiences on mobile devices for the past few years and yeah because of what's happened that's kind of moved kind of up the queue so there will always be a location experience but now there'll always be a digital experience as well. For makers out there who want to develop an artistic practice around these new forms of tech what's your advice? There's no one size fits all the only the best advice I can give you is that when you look at my work you go, wow, that's amazing. I'm like, yeah, it's not bad because of all my 100% creativity, you're looking at 20% is actually my immersive experiences. The other 80%, the masterpiece, is all the stuff that I had to do to get this stuff done. Mm. That's where your creativity is. Your creativity is not just for your art. It's for you to create the opportunities to be creative in what you're saying, how you're thinking, how you're selling yourself, what, what crazy scheme you're going to do that no one's done before you know that's where the creativity lies the art is the byproduct of that you just have to figure out your strengths and if your team because you can decide if you, how much you can do on your own if you need to bring somebody in for funding for myself personally the funding thing is not my route I am a hustler so I will hustle great I love that Karen I love your energy and your work I'm so excited that you could join us here today. My pleasure. <laughs> so there you have it. Two makers have been hugely influenced by documentary and current affairs and are using immersive technology to explore some of the big issues of our time, from misinformation and fake news to racial harassment and Black Lives Matter. At a time when storytellers are trying to cut through the noise and raise awareness or tell intimate personal stories, Immersive forms are a way of creating unique and memorable experiences that can have real impact for your audiences. If you're interested in exploring more non-fiction work, check out the show notes links on our podcast pages and we'll list a couple of great databases of immersive work. Go to storyfutures.com forward slash podcast. My guests in the next and final episode of the series will provide a whistle-stop tour of finance and distribution in the XR sector. We'll look at funding sources, the location-based experience model, and opportunities for getting a return from AR mobile games. Joining us will be experts Liz Rosenthal from Power to the Pixel, Mike Jones from Acclaim Studio Marshmallow Laser Feast, and Dave Ranyard, CEO of Dream Reality Interactive. 
If you've enjoyed the series so far, please do leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform. It really makes such a difference. See you next time. Story Futures Academy is the UK's National Centre for Immersive Storytelling and is funded as part of UKRI's Audience of the Future Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund.